Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would work through the scripture that is before us to convince us that there is a God who judges justly on earth. And Lord, make us those who know that you rule over your people to the ends of the earth. And Father, we ask that this would become for us a bedrock assurance something that we come back to, this knowledge that you are the God who has established what good and evil are, and that you are the God who will examine what we have done and reward, whether for ruin or for everlasting gladness. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know you and help us to live like we know you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking together at these psalms, and we come this morning to Psalms 58 and 59. And I would invite you to open your Bible and look with me at Psalms 58 and 59. And... Um, we're in a series of psalms here that are headed by this, this phrase, do not destroy. You see it in the superscription of Psalm 57, do not destroy, again in 58, do not destroy, and now again here in 59, do not destroy. And we don't know exactly how this phrase functions, but I think at least part of it is that this is the essence of David's prayer in these psalms. The, these prayers are also all, they, they, many of them seem to reflect um, the time when Saul was persecuting David. And so Saul's name is explicitly mentioned in the superscription of Psalms 52, 54, 57, and 59. And 56 references circumstances having to do with, with, with Saul persecuting David. So I think that these Psalms are about the time when Saul was trying to kill David. And, and so the heading, in that context, the heading, do not destroy, seems to, to, to be David's plea that God would not allow him to be destroyed by Saul. So we have this, this, these two psalms uh, headed by this phrase, do not destroy. They seem to come from this period in which Saul is persecuting David. And uh, what I would like to suggest to you is that at this time, the definition of right and wrong, good and evil, is in dispute. Because the reigning power in the land, that would be King Saul, is pursuing a course that, if you're a biblically-minded person, is evil. Saul is doing something that is evil. He is trying to kill a man who has not been convicted of any crime, He's trying to kill a man who has, he's not sought to subvert the state. He, he, there's been no uh, verdict that has come down against David, and Saul is set on destroying him. And Saul wants that to be viewed as what is right and what is good. So the definition of right and wrong, good and evil, is in dispute. And, and with this, I would suggest to you, 
uh, that if you, if you ever have a, a, a moment or a season or an hour or whatever where you're reflecting and you're, and you're sort of thinking to yourself, can I really believe all this? Can I, can I really continue to hold that Christianity is true? Here's, here's one way I think that you can respond to those questions and those doubts that might be arising in your soul. Well, there is such a thing as good and evil. There is such a thing as good and evil, and those definitions of what good is and what evil is, those things had to come from somewhere. Because if there's no God, all we have are evolving standards of decency. If there's no God, we have no means whereby to condemn those, those tribes of people or those cultures where they would argue that it's right actually to slit somebody's chest open and pull their beating heart out and feast upon it, let's say. We have no means to condemn any number of wicked practices that have been done by human beings in the course of history if there is no God. So if you know, if you know that there are things in the world that are evil and you can identify what they are, and all you have to do is think how you'd respond if somebody attacked you physically or stole your possessions or murdered someone that you love. You know there is good and there is evil. And our culture recognizes this too, don't they? Just as Colin mentioned, we can look down into Florida at things that happened this week and we say, that's evil. We, we can identify things that are good and evil. Those definitions had to come from somewhere and the explanation for where they came from is God and praise God for God's word where we have these definite, these definite statements of what good and evil are. So we're looking at this time in which Saul is trying to kill David and we keep getting these varied reflections on uh, David's response to this. And, and I would suggest to you that the Bible is teaching us how to meditate. The Bible is teaching us how to look at all the different facets of this, this conflict where Saul is persecuting and trying ultimately to kill David. And we get another aspect of that whole situation here in Psalm 58. So, so just to quickly overview Psalm 58, the question in this psalm is righteous judgment. You see in verse 1 here, do you, do you indeed decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? So what is right? And then judgment. And then look at the, the end of the psalm in verse 11. There's a reward for the righteous. There's a God who judges. Okay, so we're going to be dealing in this psalm with righteous judgment. So look with me at, at verse 1 here. David asks, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Uh, if you're looking at the ESV or the NAS, you've got the word gods there. If you're looking at the CSB or the NIV, you'll have the word mighty ones or rulers. And just to add a, a third possibility, if, you, you, there's a, if you're looking at the ESV, there's a footnote after the word gods. And down in the lower margin, it says, or you mighty lords, that's how the NIV and the CSB do. And then it says Hebrew in silence. The problem here is that uh, this one Hebrew term could be understood in different ways, depending on what vowels go with it. And we can talk more about that later. Here's the point. David is looking at a situation where Saul is trying to kill him. And there are people of influence there are people of influence, whether they're mighty lords, no, no, noble people in Israel, 
Or they might be spiritual powers. There are, there are persons of influence who could be standing up to Saul. They could be saying, wait a minute, Saul. You may be the king, but that doesn't give you the authority to execute one of your citizens. You may be the king, but you don't have the right to try to assassinate David and pin him to the wall with your, your spear. You're doing what is wrong, Saul, and it's got to stop, and we're not going to stand for it. And nobody, nobody's doing that. Nobody's standing with David. You, you read the narratives of Samuel. Saul tries to kill him. What can he do? He has to flee. He flees out of the countryside. Nobody stands up to Saul. Nobody says, our king is a madman, and we need to put him in shackles, or we need to restrain him. We need to do something to stop this. This cannot be tolerated. And in response to this, David says here in verse 1, do you indeed decree what is right? Let's say, you mighty lords. Let's say, so, so he's, in that case, he'd be addressing the humans who ought to be opposing Saul. Let's say it's you gods. Here, I think he's probably addressing the spiritual forces. Do you indeed decree what is right, you spiritual forces, who are letting Saul get away with this? Or let's say it's the word silence that you have in the lower margin. If we took it that way, we could translate it something like, in silence, do you speak what is right? In other words, you ought to be speaking what is right to Saul, and your mouths are all closed. Nobody's speaking against this. So, so this is what David is getting at. David is getting at the, at the way that Saul is pursuing wickedness. He's trying to murder David, and nobody is objecting. Nobody's opposing him. So he asks again here in verse 1, do you judge the children of man uprightly? Now, I mean, obviously the answer is no, right? These people are not judging uprightly. They're not speaking what is right. Uh, two, two things I want to say here. First, it's instructive where David turns to get justice and righteousness by the end of this psalm. Look at verse 11, or uh, verse 10. Uh, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. That, that justice and righteousness is going to come from God. And, and this is instructive for us because when we are chagrined or disappointed or disillusioned or whatever at the injustice that we see in the world, we should go back to the fact that God is going to establish justice. That's the first thing. Secondly, look at how David answers his own question in verse 1. David is objected to the injustice and unrighteousness of the culture, and, and he's objected in the form of these questions in verse 1. Now look at the answer in verse 2. No, as in no, you don't judge uprightly, and you don't decree what is right. And by not objecting to evil, look at what he says they're doing. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. David is essentially saying what Jesus said. If you're not with me, you're against me. David is, is saying what, what the Proverbs are going to say. Over in um, uh, Proverbs 28, uh, let me, let me, I think it's 28.4. Let me just check that reference for you here. I'm not finding it in my notes. Uh, it's written there, but I'm lost. Proverbs 28.4. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. And these people are not keeping the law. 
They're not enforcing the Torah against Saul's actions, and by not doing that, they're joining with the wicked. Those who forsake the law, they praise the wicked. You're doing what is right. Those who keep the law strive against them. And David says, in essence, you're not keeping the law. You're not enforcing the law. What you're doing is in your hearts, you're devising wrongs because you're coming up with these explanations of how it's right for you to go along with Saul. It's right for you to support wickedness. It's right for you to keep your mouth shut when you ought to speak. David's saying, no, this is evil what you're doing. Your hands are dealing out violence in the earth because you're not actively opposing evil. You're only passively allowing it to happen, and thereby you're engaging in it. So so David is objecting to the fact that nobody with any influence is standing with him. His cause is clearly right. The prophet Samuel has anointed him to be king. Saul's cause is clearly wrong. He's trying to assassinate David. There's no, there's no justification for this, and Saul's trying to kill him. And so David is, is crying out at this injustice in society. What he's going to do next in verses 3 through 5 is he's going to characterize the actions of the wicked. And he's going to accomplish several things here. What he's going to say is going to establish the indisputable truth that the the wicked have no redeeming characteristics that would justify supporting them or failing to oppose them. There's no excuse for failing to oppose the wicked or for supporting the wicked. And by stating these truths here in verses 3 through 5, David is also going to establish the rightness of his own cause. Look at what he says here in verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. This this ought to remind us, actually, of Psalm 51, verse 5. If if you want to look back there, Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What David says here, both in 51.5 and in 58.3, is true of every human who has ever lived. What's the difference between the wicked and the righteous then? If the wicked are estranged from the womb, if they go astray from birth, what's the difference between the wicked and the righteous? Because the righteous too were born in sin just like David. Well, the difference with the righteous is that God has intervened in their lives and he has circumcised their hearts so that they have now open eyes and open ears, and they perceive the beauty and the glory of God and the rightness of his truth, and their hearts are humbled, and they turn away from evil, and they say, that's awful, I don't want anything to do with it, I want you, God, and, and, and I'm going to trust you, Lord, for everything that I can have and, and for my deliverance, ultimately. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that one were born in the sin and the other weren't. The difference is that the righteous have been intersected by God who has taken out the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh responds to the word of God, responds to God's goodness, and joins God in loving what is good and hating what is evil. The wicked... Verse 3, 
are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. David is clarifying the issues. David is saying, Saul and his henchmen are wicked. They haven't experienced the new birth. They haven't experienced the circumcision of the heart. Don't join their cause. They're they're evil. And then in in what he says next, he's going to, to characterize them biblically, behaviorally, and viscerally. So look at verse 4. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. That characterizes Saul and his, his henchmen biblically, doesn't it? It essentially says of those who are opposed to David, these people are seed of the serpent. They are of their father, the devil. And that simultaneously characterizes David because it identifies David as belonging to the line of descent of the seed of the woman. So David is with the good guys. Saul and those trying to kill him are with the bad guys. So biblically, there's a characterization here. Behaviorally, there's a characterization. Look look at the end of verse 4. Like the deaf adder that stops its ear, verse 5, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. So in the world, there are these people who know how to charm snakes. It's remarkable, but it's true. Uh, and, and they can, they can uh, cast this spell through a flute or through some actions or whatever, and they can, they can influence the behavior of the snakes, but not these snakes. So behaviorally, what David is saying is his enemies can't be charmed. And, and I think that what, what he's getting at is they don't listen to reason. They don't allow themselves to be influenced. They're like the deaf adder that stops its ear. Those snakes you cannot charm. So so there's a biblical characterization. There's a behavioral characterization where where David is saying, these people intend to kill me, and, and you can't talk them out of it. And then there's also a visceral characterization. And, and the visceral aspect of this, this characterization is, is that these are snakes. These are snakes that are poisonous, venomous. These are killers. These are like those alligators. Maybe you saw the news about this alligator that found its way into a lake at, at one of the Disney resorts. There's only one way to deal with a snake that cannot be charmed, that is deadly. You don't cozy up to this thing. You don't try to reconcile yourself to it. You don't try to cut a deal with it. There's only one way to deal with it. So what David has done here is in a a brilliant poetic statement, he has communicated that the wicked are evil. They're against God. They're seed of the serpent. Behaviorally, they cannot be wooed away from their purposes. And then viscerally, David has removed all sentiment for them personally. Nobody's going to sympathize with them. There's nobody who's going to sympathize for their, with their cause. And he's removed any suggestion that they might be peacefully appeased. There's only one way to ensure safety when dealing with these kinds of enemies. And that's what David prays for here in verse 6. Oh God... Break the teeth in their mouths. So, so David is, is basically saying, Lord, I need you to do damage to the head of the serpent. This is Genesis 3.15 imagery, isn't it? 
Lord, I need you to make it so that these deadly serpents no longer can pursue the evil of their causes. Make it where they cannot strike. Break the teeth in their mouths. And then I think the next statement there in verse 6 is, is made to align the enemies that David is talking about here with the enemies that he's been talking about in previous psalms. Look at 57.4. My soul is in the midst of lions. Now look at the end of 58.6. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Uh, literally, this is, this is like a, a, a reference to the jawbone of the lion, which is where these large uh, fanged teeth are. And it's like David is saying, Lord, you need to get a hold of those big fangs that are connected to the jawbones and just uproot those things from the mouth of, of these, these evil opponents of mine. So it's, it's a graphic statement where David is calling on the Lord to defeat his enemies. When it comes to justice, if you want, if you want real justice, if you want true justice, you ought to em- embrace the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the only one who's going to be able to establish genuine equity. He, and we can trust him to do this. We can trust him to do this. David continues to, to call on the Lord uh, to, 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 bring, to bring down his enemy. Look at verse 7. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Have you ever, have you ever taken a pitcher of water or maybe even your water hose or whatever and you've gone outside and you've poured water on the ground? It, it doesn't pile up in a heap there and stand against you, does it? It, it, maybe you saw that uh, Chronicles of Narnia movie where um, uh, they charmed the, the, the river and, and, and this, this figure comes up out of the river and smashes the enemy of the, of the children. That's not what water does. You pour water out, it dissipates. It, 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 just, it just vanishes. It goes away. And David is saying, Lord, make my enemies like that. Make my enemies like water that is poured out on the ground. Cause them to be separated from one another. Cause them to be spread out. Cause them to lose all their their interconnectedness and their joined up power. Let them vanish like water that runs away. And then in verse 7 there, when he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. So David knows that these guys are trying to kill him. And and David is saying when when he gets his bow ready... When he puts that arrow in the string, let that arrow be ineffectual against its target. And then verse 8. This is one of those verses that I imagine my children delighting in and, um, and maybe even using against their enemies. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Um, the, the idea is if you've ever seen a snail creeping along, it leaves this trail of slime behind it. And, um, and there's this defiling and contaminating uh, effect of this snail that is, that is moving along and it's losing itself as it goes. So, so David is saying, let my enemies be like these snails that just di- dissolve on their own. This is what they're like. Everywhere they go, they contaminate and they leave this, this icky mess behind them. So, so just let them d- dissolve away. The end of verse 8, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. David wants them to be miscarriages. 
David wants his enemies not to, to have their movement birthed and then grow to maturity and strength and, and, and uh, virtuosity and virility. No, he wants them to perish before they ever get going. And then finally in verse 9, sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. I think the image here is under this pot, you pile up these thorns and all this kindling, and then you, you set a match to it. And David is saying, before that pot can even begin to heat up, let them be swept away. Let them be taken care of. Now, is all this warranted? Are these imprecations, are these prayers that God would bring down the enemies of David, are these, is this, is this overdone? Well, I think your answer to that question depends on whether or not you're aligned with the God of the Bible. If you're aligned with the God of the Bible, absolutely this is warranted. Because if you're aligned with the God of the Bible, you know him to be infinite in goodness and in worth and you know him to be worthy of all the thanks and praise that you could ever render. And you know that opposing him is the most heinous, vicious, wicked thing you could possibly do. And, and so if you're aligned with the God of the Bible, you will say, yes, all this and more is due to the, the enemies of God. But if you're not aligned with the God of the Bible, I would ask you, by what standard are you going to evaluate this? If you're not aligned with the God of the Bible, why do you value something like leniency against enemies? Or why, if you're not aligned with the God of the Bible, what makes a quality like mercy or even justice something that you would embrace ultimately? Why, why isn't that just an evolving standard of decency and these are ancient peoples and they weren't evolved and what right have we to condemn them for being Farther back on the evolutionary scale. It's not their fault, is it? If you're not aligned with the God of the Bible, on what basis are you going to condemn the Bible? Logically, I don't think you have any standing. David is aligned with the God of the Bible, and this is the way that David is praying. And then he shows in verses 10 and 11 the response to God's justice. Look at verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. The righteous will see God's justice against the wicked and rejoice. Why? Why would the righteous rejoice when God does vengeance against the wicked? Well, because God's truth is being upheld and because the people harmed by the wicked are being delivered from oppression and delivered from, from the evil treatment being visited upon them. So yes, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. And then I think verse 10, we have another reference to Genesis 3.15. Uh, Genesis 3.15 speaks of the way that the seed of the woman will uh, bruise uh, the head of the seed of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And the way these things seem to be put together is that the seed of the woman is going to stomp on the head of the, the serpent, and in that process have his heel uh, damaged. Look at verse 10. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And, and it's as though as the seed of the woman stomps on the serpent, the, the blood of the serpent is spattered on the feet of the righteous. Uh, which is interesting because it communicates that at, at some level, God's justice is visited by means of God's people. 
It's also interesting to observe here that these are singulars in verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And over in Isaiah 63, there's a description of one who comes from Edom. And he is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And it's, it's the Lord himself. It's the divine warrior, the king of Israel, the conquering savior who tramples down the people's and trods the winepress alone, and the blood of his enemies is spattered on his garments. And you also have in Revelation 19 this reference to Jesus, the word of God who comes wearing a robe dipped in blood. And it may be that the blood, that, that the blood of his enemies is, is uh, the, the source of that, um, that, those stains. So the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. God is going to conquer. He's going to triumph. He's going to establish goodness. And then verse 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So if you're tempted to ask, where is God? The answer from the Bible is, just wait. He's coming. As we look at our society and we think, where's justice? The answer is, it's coming. There is a God, there is a God who judges on earth. David knew that his enemies were God's enemies. That those who were not for God were against him. Does this kind of moral clarity mark your interactions with people? Do you know who you're dealing with? Are we actively supporting the cause of God's word or are we passively aiding the enemies of God? That's who David is responding to, I think, here in, in verses one, verse 1 at any rate. David also knows that his enemies are the seed of the serpent and that they're ultimately pursuing Satan's kingdom. And, and I wonder if we are consistent in our biblical assessment of those who are opposed to the faith, opposed to the gospel, opposed to the Bible? Are we thinking about the wicked in biblical terms? Jesus is going to come and crush the head of, his serpent, of the serpent and all his seed. And the question for every one of us is, when that happens, are we going to rejoice when God liberates all creation from the power of evil, or is our blood going to be spattered on the robes of the divine warrior. That brings us to Psalm 59. And here again, we're, we're in the same kind of psalm. Uh, there's one additional note in the superscription of Psalm 59 that helps us understand this particular psalm. Look at that superscription there. It says, When Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So in this psalm, it seems that David is responding to these spies and assassins who have been sent by Saul to kill him. David again cries out to the Lord for deliverance. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Same, same opening, uh, verse 2, deliver me from those who work evil. And, and he wants in verse 1 to be protected from those who rise up against me. Verse 2, save me from bloodthirsty men. David is in mortal danger and he's calling on the Lord for deliverance. In, in verses 3 through 5, 
He, he describes these people's activities. Verse 3, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. So you can imagine this, this scene where in the evening, these guys are lurking around David's house, hoping for an opportunity either to seize him or to slay him. Fierce men stir up strife against me. And now, at this point, David is going to start to insist on his innocence. He's going to insist that he's not guilty. He's he's not been condemned. There at the end of verse 3, For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. And now he calls on the Lord, Awake, come to meet me and see. Now in verse 5, it's as though David is working through these, these difficulties. He's innocent. These people are trying to kill him. And look at what he does. He asserts here the identity of his defender. You, Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, you're the one who's for me, Lord. And, and, and this, I think, is, is reestablishing confidence in David as he contemplates the identity of the Lord and calls on him again, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Essentially what David is doing is saying, don't be gracious to them. Don't be gracious to these people. Don't spare them as they treacherously plot evil. And then we come to a kind of turning point in the psalm. At the end of verse 5, we find this selah. And then it's like David circles back to, to re-describe these, these wicked people lurking around his home. And, and in verse 6, he, he's, he, he describes them. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. If you look down at verse 14, same statement. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. So these killers, these assassins, they're prowling around looking to kill David. He continues to describe them in verse 7. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. So so, uh, they're spewing out this arrogant talk, these, these dangerous words. And then here's the explanation for the way they're acting at the end of verse 7. For who, they think, will hear us? Who hears us? This, this essentially is saying, God's not going to hear what we say and judge us. Who hears us? Nobody's going to hold us to account for what we're saying. So these are obviously people like those David described in Psalm 53.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So these people think that no God is going to punish them. And David responds to them here in verse 8, and his response is based squarely on Psalm 2 verse 4. You you may remember back in Psalm 2, um, the, the, the enemies of the Lord were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, and the one enthroned in the heavens laughs at them. David says here in verse 8, You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. The truth here is that God mocks all who think to overthrow his almighty power. This is not cruel. 
We need, we, need to, we need to understand. It might be cruel for one of us to respond this way, but it's not cruel for God. The reason it's not cruel for God is because only laughable fools would attempt to overcome the omnipotent. He alone is God. It is, it is a mockery to try to overcome him. And that's what's being articulated here. You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. So again, David says here in verse 9, O my strength, I will watch for you. These enemies are watching for David, and David is watching for the Lord. He says, O you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. Once again, David is confident in God's character and his love for him. And that confidence leads him to say at the end of verse 10, God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Now, to this point, a lot of this is, is familiar, right? David keeps getting himself in difficulty. He's looking at another aspect of it now. These dogs prowling around, the assassins lurking at his home to kill him. Something new is brought in here in verse 11. Uh, David says in verse 11, Kill them not, lest my people forget. What's what's interesting is the way that in different circumstances, David responds in different ways to his enemies. So in Psalm 58, verse 9, sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, sweep them away. He wants them disposed of quickly. But now in 5911, he says, kill them not lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. It's as though he's saying, I want them to totter slowly. I want them to be brought down, but don't kill them. Don't kill them. Why not? Lest my people forget. Because the abiding presence of the defeated enemy serves as a good testimony to the people of God. So different circumstances, different response. Sweep them away, 58.9. Don't kill them. Make them totter. Bring them down. But keep them around lest we forget, 59. 11. Uh, Sometimes captured foes are useful for the testimony that they provide, and and that's what we see from David here. Whereas David had had insisted on his own innocence earlier in the psalm, verses 3 and 4, now he insists on the guilt of his enemies, verse 12. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. And here's why David wants his enemies consumed and utterly extinguished. The end of verse 13. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. That the bringing of God's justice establishes his existence. 58 11. Mankind will say, surely there is a God who judges on earth. It also establishes his reign and rule. The bringing of God's justice establishes his existence and his reign that they may know, 59.13, that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. One of the things I think we need in our day, in this particular culture, is we need to be encouraged to stand against evil. We need to be encouraged to stand up against sin. We need to, whether this sin is, is happening 
in our own homes with our children or spouses or whatever, in our workplaces or in society at large. We need to stand up. David is, is working through this difficulty, but he's not yet delivered. Verse 14, each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. They are ravenously hungry for David's life. And in the midst of that, knowing that he has these people trying to kill him, again he says in verses 16 and 17, but I will sing of your strength. What keeps David rejoicing is his experience of God. And his experience of God empowers him to stand against evil and to continue to worship the Lord in the midst of this wickedness that is surrounding him. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. These, it's, it's nighttime when these people are trying to kill David. And he's saying, I'm confident that in the morning, I'm going to be singing of your steadfast love because I'm confident in your word to me. I'm confident you're going to deliver me and I'm going to keep worshiping you. For, into verse 16 there, you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. There is one greater than David who arose, who had more claim to innocence than David ever had, for whom the enemies prowled about seeking his life, just as David's enemies gathered around him. Just as uh, the enemies of David gathered against the Lord and against his anointed, the enemies gathered against Jesus, the anointed of the Lord. And the Lord laughs and mocks at those with the audacity to try to kill the one who has life in himself. In the book of Acts, they say of Jesus that death had no power to hold him. This should convince us that the destruction of God's enemies, whether it's fast or slow, it is certain. And the Bible indicates that the everlasting torment of the wicked will be an, an ongoing testimony to the justice of God. God rules not only over his people, but to the ends of the earth. And God's people will sing psalms of praise to him and his loving kindness forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us bold and make us confident of your goodness and righteousness. We pray, Lord, that if there are those here who recognize that they were born in sin and they are under your wrath, we pray, Lord, that you would cause them, by the merciful action of your Spirit, to see that there's a Savior, that there's a way for them to go from being wicked and aligned with the seed of the serpent to being righteous and aligned with the seed of the woman. And we pray, Lord, that they would have a desire, an overwhelming desire, an irresistible desire to turn away from everything that you have identified as evil and to trust completely in King Jesus.
And we pray, Father, that they would find him to be a mighty Savior, one who is able to deliver. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.